0: If if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You're excused, Brian, from turning that to that. Oh, oops. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew right there in front of you. And the page number for 1 Corinthians 14 is 1787? 1787? Yeah. Um, Let me kind of introduce it first and then read the passage, because it's fairly extended, and it might confuse you if I don't. Now, normally when you start a sermon, um, you're supposed to say something interesting. That's like the whole point of introductions, is to pique everybody's interest. Um, The problem is that this passage talks about the fact that clear is king. And this passage talks about two things that, if, if they're unclear to you, this whole this whole time we're going to have together is just going to be a fog. So let me, I want to take a couple minutes because there's two things in this passage that come up again and again. That is prophecy and speaking in tongues. And I want to tell you what those things are so that when I read the passage, you're tracking, okay? Um, Now, both speaking in tongues and prophecy are in these other lists of things referred to as spiritual gifts. That is, that they're divine powerments of the Holy Spirit used in building up the church. Now, I took that definition from Wingroom's Systematic Theology that sold a quarter million copies, but it's a little— I, I really actually don't like the in the church prepositional phrase at the end because I see Christians using their spiritual gifts outside the church all the time. Um, but uh, there's a big emphasis— in the Bible of using them to build up the people of God, i.e. the church, and therefore, I, you know, it is what it is. Now, so, so what is speaking in tongues? Now, the word tongues in the Bible is the same word for languages. So you can say speaking in tongues, speaking in languages, but the reason they translate it speaking in tongues is to differentiate it from people who have cognitive Abilities in language and linguistics. That's not what this is talking about Oftentimes with people with with gifts in missions or gifts in leadership or what I would characterize as gifts of apostleship Oftentimes people like that are are moving between different language groups and cultures and so on And and God uses language gifts that they have of learning multiple languages and so on I've worked with people in India who knew 12 or 15 languages um, And it was very helpful In leadership and in apostleship and in missions but what this is referring to, speaking in tongues, is um, a divine empowerment by the Holy Spirit to pray or praise God spoken in syllables or word that are not even understood by the speaker, much less the people around them. So somebody who has the gift of speaking in tongues would, would, it has a divine empowerment to, to praise God and to pray to God um, in words that they don't even understand what they're saying them. Now, that may sound uber weird to you and... I can understand that, and I've never experienced this, but what I will say this, that um, if you really believe in the doctrine of depravity, that we are deeply bent and broken people, that though God is redeeming us, there's still lots of things wrong with us, and it's one of the ways that there's things really wrong with us is how we think, and how we think about God, and therefore how we treat God, and how we approach God. You, would, you will have this existential conundrum of saying, when you're praying, am I even talking to God Right? Or is the way I'm even approaching him infuriating? Now, some of that you can just get over because Christ died for our sins and God wants us to come to them. But at some point you say, I wish I could praise God better. I wish I could pray to God better. I wish I could get my depravity a little out of the way for a minute. And if you thought that thought, you might think speaking in tongues was a really cool thing. Right? Now, the other thing referred to is prophecy, which is different than what I do most of the time, which is pr- like preaching or teaching, in that what I am doing is pre-written and pre-meditated. I have studied mainly in preparation for what I'm going to write. Now hopefully there's some divine leading in this and what I stick with and what I move on and how I illustrate and how I apply it and all that, all that stuff. But that's all mixed together in preparation and pre-meditation. The prophecy as being referred to here is essentially sharing with other people something God has spontaneously brought to mind for their good, for their encouragement, for their upbuilding, for sometimes for confrontation. Um, um, but it's, it's, it's a spontaneous action which you, you, you feel led by God in some way and you, you're, you feel like you're supposed to share that with other people to help them, okay? Now, um, let me stop there and read the passage because I don't want to preset this too much, okay? So, look at 1 Corinthians 14. Follow the way of love, And eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit, but everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you, unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes. Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, and none of them is without meaning— If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to that person, and he's a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in the gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit. But I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do— How—I'm sorry. If you're praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, "Through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people." But even then, they will not listen to me," says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign for are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now, let me say a couple more things about prophecy because I'm not going to preach a sermon on this, and then we're going to move by it, and you're going to say, when are you going to preach about prophecy? And I'm going to say, well, I didn't. So I, I, I want to say a few things about this that I hope will be helpful because I've heard about some things coming up in discussions in small group and I've been encouraged to say a few things. So let me say a few things. One is, um, if, you are, if you seek the spiritual gifts and God chooses in his sovereignty to give you the gift of prophecy, it's probably not going to feel like full sentences and paragraphs. You know, you may have heard pe- people talk about people saying, like, straight paragraphs, thus says the Lord, and off you go. And that's really not how most people I know who have the gift of prophecy talk about it. What they feel some kind of impression that God wants to say something? And it's usually fairly general. It's usually not in syntax. And they share it, and they just see what happens. And so if you feel—if you feel an impression that God wants to share something, then just in real humility, just share that basic content with somebody else and see what happens— don't expect them to just do what you say, you know? But you can just say, hey, can I just share something with you kind of see what— and just see what happens, okay? So, there it is. Secondly, one of the things to recognize is the New Testament gift of prophecy, it, like the Old Testament gift of prophecy, actually is not very commonly predictive. A lot of times people think prophecy is like, you know, you've got to be like Nostrad- Nostradamus and like decide like which hideous city is going to be terrorist attacked next or something. And it's, it's really not like that. You, most of the prophecy in the Bible is not predictive— Most of the prophecy in the Bible is, hey, um, remember how God said this a while back? We're not doing it. And that's a problem. How about we believe God and do it? That's The vast majority of prophecy in the Bible is really just that— God loves you. God wants you to come back to him. We're not walking with him. He told us this. We're acting like he didn't tell us this. Why are we doing that? Do we think God is dead or doesn't exist? He's there. He's just gracious. That's not why he's not—that's why he's not killing us. It's not because he's not present. Let's believe him. Let's trust him. Let's—that's what most prophecy is. It's simply the reapplication of truth in real time. And that's how the spiritual gift of prophecy usually comes across, too. Sometimes it has predictive elements, but it's usually just the reapplication of truth in real time for— Comfort or direction or help or something. Um, Thirdly, um, prophecy in Scripture is meant to be judged and interpreted by others, not the prophet themselves. So prophecy prophecy oftentimes isn't self-interpreting. For example, there's this place in Acts 21 where Agabus, who's like this pretty well-known, legit prophet, says to Paul, he's like, dude, if you go to Jerusalem— he takes, takes Paul's belt, ties him up with him. He says, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to tie you up. They're going to hand you over to your enemies. Who knows what's going to happen to you? And all the people at church that morning were like, praise the Lord. God spoke to us, and now we know what's going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem. Now he cannot go. Right? That's self-evident. Right? Self-evident interpretation of that prophecy. What does Paul say? Whatever He's like, listen Let me tell you a little prophecy Every city I go to The Holy Spirit tells me They're probably gonna tie me up and kill me Every city I wouldn't have come here If I was afraid to get tied up and killed Listen I don't care if they I don't care if they kill me in Jerusalem That's where I'm going And so the point So what was the point of that prophecy? It wasn't for Paul. It was for Paul. Sure it was for Paul. He's going to get tied up. Okay. But it was for the church. The church needed to deal with the fact that Paul knew jolly well he was going to prison. He knew darn well he might be killed, and he was going to Jerusalem because the gospel mattered more than his life. It mattered more than his freedom. It mattered more than anything. And this church needed to realize they didn't understand that. The very fact that they said to Paul, Oh, don't go, shows they needed the prophecy. They needed their leader to say, no, I'm going. This is what I'm for, right? So prophecy isn't self-interpreting. And in Scripture, the people who are given the role and responsibility in the local church to determine whether or not a a prophetic word is legitimate are actually the elders, not the prophet, right? You see this division of—why? It's partly because for humility's sake. Because who should be interpreting spiritual actions— well, it, sh- it, shouldn't be the, it should be the most spiritual people in the sense of the most mature and godly people, and we should be selecting them as a church body and electing them in eldership. And those people then are responsible to judge and make sure that this thing is happening in relationship to the scripture, that the prophecy goes along with scripture. And secondly, they are supposed to know the flock, right? They're supposed to know us. And they should have a sense of resonance when they hear that to say, yeah, that probably is what God is saying to us. And so they can confirm it and affirm it. The other thing, too, is when somebody shares a prophecy with you, they should never ask—they should never expect you to just do it. If anybody says something predictive, or you should do this or whatever, and they they apparently think you should just do it, you should probably see that as an expression of pride rather than the message of the Holy Spirit. And that even if their message seems like it's kind of on, you should assume it's fouled up with pride somewhere. So be careful how you deal with it. If somebody shares something with you, they say, look, I feel like God wants me to share this with you. Um, A good response is, thank you. I'm going to consider that. And if they go, awesome, then consider it. But if they apparently think you should have just done it and kneeled down before them and like whatever, then you should be very suspicious of that because the gift is operating in pride. And where pride is, things get fouled up real fast. And if you don't know, well, then what do you do? Well, who does God give the body to help judge these things? The elders. So go and talk to somebody, right? Um, right prophecy is going to resonate with scripture. And, and in terms of you judging it, one charismatic person from, from England who was who Wayne Grudem quotes about this, he said—or actually, she said, um, if somebody comes up and tells you something that they, they feel like is from God— if it's, if it's really prophetic, usually it's going to resonate in some, with something God's already doing in your life. Like, you're going to have been fighting something for like five months, and someone will be like, I feel like God wants me to say this. And you're like, oh, stink. It's, it's already there. So it's not, it won't feel out of the blue. If it's on, it's going to hit, and you're going to be like, oh, yeah, that's totally right. <sighs> that make sense? So there's a confirming thing that happens. So that the prophet, the prophet is not functioning independently so that it doesn't feed into their pride. And they don't have to be terrified because if you feel like God's given you this gift in, or, or he may give, have given you some message, you can just offer it and then just step back and just be like, okay, I think God might be saying this. And you don't have to be self-important and you don't have to—you can just let it be and just see what happens. Because if it's, if it's real prophecy, it's not your message, it's God's. So, try to offer it faithfully in humility with both t- truthfulness and love, and then, if it's a good seed, it'll grow. Right? Okay, that's all I have time to say about that right now. So, there it is. Now, here's, here's the thing we need to, where we need to go from here. This passage isn't about speaking in tongues and prophecy. Is it? For all that it says about speaking in tongues and prophecy, this passage isn't about speaking in tongues and prophecy— Speaking in tongues and prophecy are a case study that Paul gets to now at the end of two other chapters about spiritual gifts. So he's been teaching about spiritual gifts for two chapters, right? All through 12, we're a body. We have different gifts, one spirit. Everything comes down to love, and the most excellent way to seek the gifts is to seek them in love and live them out in love. Then he gets into chapter 14, and and now he basically says, now let's do a case study. And the reason he picks speaking in tongues in prophecy is because as you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, it becomes evident that these guys were kind of enamored with speaking in tongues. They thought speaking in tongues was pretty awesome. And apparently it wasn't just because speaking in tongues is apparently probably awesome because it's a spiritual gift— but because it sort of demonstrated how spiritual you are. Like, you're speaking this, like, other language. Like, aren't you spiritual, right? And, and so, and they were kind of showing off. They're, like, doing it in church, and, like, nobody's interpreting it. So you got all these people speaking all kinds of stuff, and, and they're like, aren't we spiritual? And Paul's like, no, you're not actually very spiritual at all. This is actually a little bit crazy. It's a little crazy. The whole message of this section of Scripture really is summed up in the first verse, where he says, Follow the way of love, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Now, if you've been here the last three or four weeks or whatever, the first two probably make perfect sense, right? Pursue love, that's all chapter 13, makes perfect sense, right? Um, Be earnestly desire spiritual gifts, that's how chapter 12 ends, right? That makes perfect sense. Seek the gift of prophecy. Now you're kind of like, okay, now I feel like I joined a cult. What just happened? I was, I was tracking with you. Now all of a sudden I'm like, what do you mean? Now we're all supposed to be prophets. What's going on here? And um, one of the things we need to recognize is that when, when Paul says that, He's relating speaking in tongues and prophecy with each other. And the—see, the reason why prophecy and speaking in tongues are such good gifts to foil against each other and to discuss in contrast is because they share some similarities, but one very distinct difference, right? They're similar in that they're both spontaneous. They're similar in that they're both speaking gifts, right? You speak with both of them. But there's one huge difference. One is totally not understandable, and the other is totally understandable. That's the big difference. And the effect he argues is that one of them therefore may make may edify you and make, may build you up. It may make your faith stronger and it may make you feel better. But it doesn't help anybody else. In fact, it probably hurts them. But the other one is not, is not good for anything but building other people up, strengthening them, edifying them and making their faith stronger. That's the difference. That when he says, seek the gift of prophecy, he does mean that particularly. Do I think that Paul is saying, listen, you should want the gift of prophecy? Absolutely. I absolutely think that. Who would not want the gift of prophecy, honestly? I just don't know. If you don't want the gift of prophecy, it's probably because you've seen a lot of abuses, right? That's That's a very logical reason, right? In practicality, you don't want the gift of prophecy. But in generality, how could you not want the gift of prophecy, right? But he means it more generally than that. Because as you go through the passage, he doesn't keep affirming again and again and again, again again, you need the gift of prophecy. The, The main focus again and again and again is you need to seek to build up other people. That's the big key. And prophecy becomes this bulwark for that because that's what it is. It is God's message to build up strength and encourage other people. And it stands over all the other gifts because otherwise, if you read this, you'd have to either think that this is only for a certain group of people in the church or everybody can receive the gift of prophecy. But everybody can't receive the gift of prophecy. Chapter 12 is explicit about that. So the way this has to get applied is this: we all need to recognize that step three in this process, step one is, what am I here to do? I'm here to love, right? Chapter 13, chapter eight whole Bible, right? I'm here to love. I'm here to express the gospel in love, right? How am I supposed to do that? Well, I'm supposed to seek—one of the the ways I'm supposed to do that is I'm supposed to seek spiritual gifts, right? I'm supposed to seek these spiritual gifts as tools and and divine resources to live out love. Okay, now what do you do with them? Well, we'll just make this argument circular. I'm supposed to love, right? Except love is a little vague. Like, what do you—really? I mean, how do you— well, how do you love? Well, I seek spiritual gifts. What do I do with them? Well, I'm going to love. And it just kind of goes round and round and round. But how do you love with your spiritual gift? And what Paul says very, very clearly here is you edify. You build. Which I kind of like because I'm a dude. The, I mean, the word love is great, and love is great. And I did a wedding yesterday, and it's love, 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 love. And it was wonderful. But I, the word love doesn't, like, do—I mean, it doesn't do a lot for me. Like, except in certain contexts. When when somebody says, listen, what your life is all about is love. As a dude, I'm kind of like, yeah. And what do I do with the rest of my time? You know, I mean, it's like, um, but see, build up, edify. That's like— gender non-specific, Like that, you you can think about that in lots of different ways because how do you build people up? Well, people who are hurting, you know, you listen to them, you encourage them, you give them a hug, whatever you do. People who do that kind of thing, whatever you do, that's what you do, right? And then, like, then other people are like, well, sometimes, like, sometimes to help somebody, you need to give them a good punch in the face. I mean, you need to tell them the truth. You need to, you know, you need to kind of, right? I mean, there's lots of ways to build. Whatever medicine people require, whatever they need, whatever is really for their good— is what is necessary to build them up. And what he's saying is, here are these these spiritual gifts. There's lots of different ones. You might receive any number of them. And what do you do with it? Well, you love. Well, what, what counts as love? When you understand the gospel and you understand the true good of other people, what builds them into that? What can you do that is clear and intelligible and in keeping with the design of your gift that is truly loving, that is using your gift as it's designed and clearly so that they are built up? And that's all there is to it. Let's pray. Just kidding. (laughs) Now, one of the things that really bothers me is when pastors preach on passages that have a section that is really hard to interpret and that seems really weird or whatever, and they just skip it. That's always been a pet peeve of mine because all the people who are like sort of secular, non-church goers who just happen to be there, they're like, that's exactly what I thought. Those pastors, they never deal with the hard stuff. They always just pretend that stuff isn't in the Bible. They pick the verses they like and they talk about that. And then all the Christians miss an opportunity to like dig in. and and figure out what a passage means that isn't easy. And we just get lazier, right? And neither of those is good. And so I kind of have this thing where like, I just like to go straight to the verses that are the toughest and let's deal with those. And here's why I think that's also critical. Oftentimes, that is one of the critical parts of the passage. When you understand that, the whole thing makes more sense. And the difficult part of this passage, I think, is verses 18 and 25 where Paul sounds to do a total 180. It sounds like he totally contradicts himself in just a few verses, and there's sort of this obscure Old Testament passage stuck in there, and it looks really odd. Okay? And if you understand these verses, I believe you will understand this passage ten times better, and the condescending— like, it sounds kind of condescending towards non-Christians. I think that goes away, because really, it's meant to be a condescending jab at Christians— in how we treat and really feel about non-Christians. And it doesn't seem that way until you understand the Old Testament passage. So let's read it together. So you ready to kind of think a little, kind of hard for like seven minutes? Are you with me? Okay, great. So verse 19 or 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it's written. Now, the law, he's referring to the whole Old Testament now. This is from Isaiah 28. Through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Okay, that's the Old Testament quotation. Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So what does he sound like he's saying so far, right? He's saying, based on this Old Testament passage that sounds kind of confusing, God said, I'm going to give tongues for unbelievers. And so unbelievers, people who don't already believe in love and follow Jesus, speaking in tongues is for them— and prophecy is for Christians. And there it is, right? Which is a, might be a little puzzling, but that's, there's what it's, that's what it sounds like he says. Now, now go on. It sounds like he totally switches, right? So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, will he be— He will be convinced by all that he's a sinner, that he will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare, so he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now, isn't that a little weird? Because now it sounds like if somebody comes in who doesn't understand Christianity or who's, like, an openly not a believer, like, thinks he understands but just doesn't want anything to do with it, that person comes in, we're all speaking in tongues— I mean, think, I mean, think about this, right? So let's say you bring Fred or, like, Alicia from work, right? Why don't you come to church with me? And she goes, okay, right? And so you bring Alicia, and she's sitting next to you at church, and it's like speaking in tongues Sunday at High Point, right? We're all just, like, we're all just ripping into it, just speaking in tongues like we always do, right? And, and so and Alicia's sitting right next to you, and what's, she gonna, what's her reaction probably going to be? Right? The, these people are buck nuts crazy. Did you, what did you bring me to? I thought this was a church. Like, what's going on, right? They're going to—I mean, she's probably going to think we're nuts, right? Now, are we nuts if we're expressing the real gift of speaking in tongues? Well, not—probably not really. I mean, we're not doing it the way the Bible tells us to do it, but it might be a real gift. But they're going to think we're nuts, right? That's not very therapeutic, is it? We didn't really help Alicia all that much, right? Now, sw- flip it around, right? You, you bring, like, Fred from work, and it's like Prophecy Sunday, Right? And he comes here, and somebody gets up and he's like, dude, I just, I don't want to be too aggressive here, but I feel like God is saying this. And they share some kind of thing, and it's oddly specific, but yet just really biblical. And then some, uh, somebody goes, dude, that's totally me. And some other guy goes, that is me too. We, and they're like, yes. And so they come up and they're crying and their wife is like hugging up. And they're the kid, the baby's crying and the elders get around. We pray for them and they like recommit their their small. Like, I need accountability on this and I really want to follow Jesus. Ooh, right? And then like somebody else gets up and there's like eight or nine of those people. Everybody's crying, right? And Well, then what's Fred going to say? Now Fred is going to be just as weirded out, right? He's going to be just as weirded out. But What's he? What's he's be like? What the? What the heck is going on? He's like. He's like. I was like. These people like it's Something's. He's like. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe God's talking to us. You know. Maybe He exists. Maybe you ought to believe in him. <laughs> right. And Fred's like, He's like, you know, and then he's like, maybe I should should I just like should I go up there now or I mean what's gonna because they're gonna get they're gonna get to me aren't they they might get to you right which is what, I mean the verse says I mean the person goes like wait a second this is gonna get to me like m- my heart is gonna be laid bare I'm gonna be judged by Allah. and he, he doesn't mean that as like judgmental like everybody's gonna judge you no like everybody's gonna know who you really are God is gonna reveal who you really are which is terrifying you know and he's gonna be like I think I might just need to go ahead and repent right now which is what it means they'll fall down and worship God saying God is. Really, among you, right? There will be this sense. So, wait a second, wait a second. Wait, wait." Wait, that makes it sound like speaking in tongues isn't for unbelievers, but prophecy is. Isn't that exactly the opposite of what he just said? And the secret, like in often cases when there's an Old Testament passage, is in the Old Testament verse. So, if you have a Pew Bible, turn it to 1099. And if you have a normal, not Pew Bible, turn it to Isaiah 28. I'm going to read verses 8 to 12. Now, the context here is for like 450 years— God's people, the Israelites in Israel, have been not doing what God said. God saves them out of Egypt, gives them a new land, takes care of them, gives them a law, makes them a people, gives them prophets, gives them leadership, gives them food, takes them to homes they didn't build, trees they didn't plant, crop fields that are already prepared for him that they did not dig, does all of this for them to bless them and love them and care for them, and they just do whatever the heck they want for generations, culminating in sacrificing some of their own children in fire to pagan gods point where God's like, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm done with this. This arrangement we've got, I think I'm done with this arrangement we've got, right? And so he sends more prophets to tell them that time is just about run out, and this is their last call to repent and turn back to him. And Isaiah is that prophet. And so in a lot of different messages, Isaiah tries to explain what what they're doing is like and how they need to turn back to God. In this context, he basically describes this sort of big banquet hall where everybody is flat drunk, puking everywhere, disgustingly debauched, yet thinking they're pretty awesome. And in that, 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 that's what he's saying. This is what you're like, Israel. And this is the kind of attitude that you have. And he's trying to speak into that situation. And he gets to these verses, starting in verse he says, all the tables are covered with vomit and there is not a spot without filth. And then you'll see the quotation there. So now he, he's quoting what they would say back to him. So these are the sinful people who will not listen sort of yelling back at the prophet. And they say, who is he? Who is it he is trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk, to those just taken from the breast. So, so kids just weaned like a two-year-old, a 14-month to 22-year-old kind of kid, Right? Still quoting. For, for it is—or basically, this is what you're telling us. This is all you're telling us. Do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there, right? Kind of mocking what you're saying is just—it's stupidly simple. Like, this is for little babies. Like, who do you think you're talking to, right? This is beneath us. And then the prophet's speaking again. Very well then. With foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people— to whom he said, This is the resting place, let the weary rest, and this is the place of repose, but they would not listen. Okay, so you see what's happening here? These these guys are saying, listen, what you're saying is beneath us and, and what Isaiah is saying back, he said, Okay, listen. If the idea that God would give you a place of rest, that God would care about you and take care of you, that God would be your God and you would be his people, that you could trust him and that he would take care of you, that if you would follow in his commands, he would would create a a life of blessing and goodness for you. If all that is beneath you, okay, if that is too stupid for you, if you'd you'd rather get drunk and mock it, basically, that's sort of your attitude, then we can do a more complex message. We could do a more complex message. Here's what's going to happen the Assyrians are going to come and speak Assyrian at you while they kill you. How's that for a complex message? You can listen to Assyrian that you can't understand while they kill you and drag you off into exile and you're never heard from again. Is that better? Is that a complex enough message for you? Right? That's really fun, isn't it? That's what, when they talk about encouraging prophecies, boom, Isaiah 28, right? Right? But think about this. This is loving in this sense. This hasn't happened yet when he says this. When Isaiah gives this prophecy, these people still have a chance to repent. Why is it so drastic? Because this is the last call. This is it. They've been to rehab a number of times. It's this or they die. And so he amps it up as far as he can amp it up to try to get their attention, to bring them to repentance so that they will come to God. And so this is what he says. So when Paul says, based on this passage, oh yeah, so yeah, speaking in tongues, it's for unbelievers. What is he saying? Think about the shot he's taking at us. He's saying, if you speak in tongues at non-believers, yeah, it's it's prophetic, it's from God, it's, you know, it's for them in that they don't understand it and it's a message that they're going to die and go to hell. That's what it is. It's a message of condemnation. If what they hear is a language from God that has meaning that they can't understand, it means that the message is now beyond them, they—they're lost to it, and they're about to be condemned and destroyed forever. Aren't you a wonderful neighbor? And aren't you a loving Christian that you could care less, right? That you could care less about their well-being and their salvation. You're right. Speaking in tongues as foreign believers, you should really speak it at them. It'll really help them. Do you see what he's saying? And he comes around to prophecy and says, now look at Prophecy is designed for believers, Right? Most of the time in the church, prophecies are going to be spoken between believers. But in a, a person who doesn't believe in and follow Jesus may be sitting there and listening to it and hearing it and see what's happening and realize that God is real and he's reaching out to people and he's redeeming people and he's transforming people. And you see, that's also for believers. Though it's for the person in the church that received it, it also has a redemptive effect for believers. That is that prophecy is not just for believers it's also for unbelievers in that it could have a good effect on them so therefore i'm saying is prophecy is for both why because intelligibility and clarity is a requirement of love if you love somebody you don't offer them something unintelligible you don't offer them something that's that's dirty water unclear clarity and intelligibility is a mark of love and if what you want to offer somebody is going to be loving it has to be intelligible it has to be clear and whether you're loving a believer or whether you're loving an unbeliever it doesn't matter if you're if you are a lover if you are a neighbor if you are a christian you should want to offer them something redemptive and if you offer them speaking in tongues it may be sure enough before them in that it's condemning them and they're in a state of condemnation well isn't that wonderful but is that really all there is? Is that really what it's for? Is that really all we care about? And is the thing you're doing when you speak in tongues in that situation, is that really for them or is that really for you? You see, the whole thing comes back to the main thrust of Paul throughout this whole epistle. Chapters one all the way through here. It's pride. What would cause somebody to use speaking in tongues in this way? It's pride. It's just pride. Pride. I'm a spiritual guy. speak in tongues. Look at me. Even though you're really just destroying, you're turning away, you're adding to the condemnation of the person who doesn't understand and doesn't believe, or you're doing nothing to build up the person who, if you would speak five intelligible words, they could be helped. Which just brings back to the major point he's making through the whole passage, right? Love, earnestly seek spiritual gifts and use them to build up anybody and everybody you can first within the church and then beyond that to anybody that you can reach and touch and build into. Let's skip a bit, brother. When I was in, um, when I was, uh, did you get the Money Python quote? No, okay. Um, so when, when I was in college, I, was, I worked at a camp and there was a saying at this camp called, um, the, the, called the no discount policy. The no discount policy, and they t- all we told all the kids the first day you, you you couldn't discount anybody's worth. You couldn't say anything that discounted the value of somebody else. So it was like no put downs. That was the way we said it. And so we brought that back to the college ministry that I was a part of, and we changed it a little bit. We said instead of saying no discounts, whenever somebody would say something mean to somebody else, we'd say edify stupid. <laughs> And because, and be, here's why: because we had to be ironic because we were in our like late teens and twenties. Because edify is a dorky word, right? Edify, is a, edify, edification. That's a dorky word, but it's also a really great concept, right? This is the one of the new um, World Trade Centers called the Freedom Tower. Like they've been building it for a while now. They're they're. they're it is amazing what people, when they get together and they use their abilities and they have a goal, can do. They can build. And here's the thing. The thing that God is building is, is people. He's building a church, but, but the church is the people in it. We use buildings. We use vehicles. We use money. But we use all that stuff to build people. And what God is interested in is building people. And so what we are here to do is edify we're here to build. We're here to use our gifts based on their design in a clear and intelligible way to build each other up. I'll say just a, one couple thing about each of these things. One is that we need to build with clarity or what we, what we do needs to be intelligible. It's meant to be a really evocative thing when he says, listen, guys, I would rather speak five intelligible words in the church than 10,000 in a tongue, right? That's 20 pages of single-spaced, 12-type font, 10,000 words, Right? He, he, he's saying, li- listen, I would literally rather say God will get us through this or you don't have to live there or the cross can change us or on and on and on than 20 pages of single-spaced 12-point font. About a 50-minute sermon. Just kidding. Uh, but it's important to recognize that this applies really considerably beyond speaking in tongues, right? Obviously, it applies to speaking in tongues, right? If you have that gift, then don't whip out the unintelligibility in the gathered church. Don't do it unless there's interpretation. It's not legit. It's not loving because it's not building, right? But, but there's also other ways. Like, for example, talking over people. Like, how often do we use our Bible knowledge and just talk over people, right? What happens when somebody comes in and they don't know that Paul and Saul are the same guy? They don't know what a New Testament is. They don't know what a Philippians is. They can't tell you if Moses was in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Well, well guess what? When we, like, use our, our Bible knowledge and we, we have everything just rooted in that kind of vocabulary, it's, kind of, it's almost like we're speaking in tongues. They're just on the outside right? Or when we talk past people, when we use, like, not—they're not, not necessarily—it's not necessarily Bible knowledge, but it's Christian language. Like, it's really fun to learn Christian language when you're a Christian, right? And you learn—you you start dropping theology words that you learned at, you know, your ABF or whatever. But that's not what ABFs are for, right? They're not—it's not so we can learn words so we can use them, and we not know what they mean, and nobody else knows what they mean, right? Right? In fact, one of the, I was telling somebody just last night that one of the things I think every Christian has to do is to learn to talk about their faith in completely secular terms. Now, and here's what I don't mean in terms of that it's— we believe in something that's secular, but, but to take all the Christian vocabulary— and to put it over here and agree not to use it for a little bit, and then to take the realities of God and what God says in the scriptures and how the gospel is, and to take all the language of our secular culture and be able to explain this with this. And it'll do two things. One, we'll be intelligible to the people we talk to, and two, we will finally start understanding some of the phrases we throw around. The gospel will mean more to us and we will also be clear to other people and we'll think much more deeply, much more broadly, much more clearly about almost anything we believe. So we don't want to talk over people, talk past people, or honestly, talk beneath people. Talking over people is bad. And, 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 and putting the bar up where people can't honestly reach it if they're just starting out, it's a bad thing. It's also, I think it's also a bad thing to go too, shoot too low. To, pr- to preach and to talk, just go get them, tiger sermons, and... You're, you're fabulous just the way you are, and aren't you wonderful? And Jesus doesn't don't want to build holiness in you. He just wants to tell you you're fantastic. And um, if you believe in him, he'll probably bless your socks off, and you can give to the church. And th- that is not the message that we have to give. And sometimes I mean, we need to get in there, and we need to give the whole message of the gospel. This is, this is what God is saying. This is what he wants to do in your life. This is what the gospel means. And we need to talk about freedom and holiness and understanding the gospel and discipline that we have to—and all these things and how they work together to fill out all that God wants to do in us individually and together. And there are a lot of churches that love not talking over people or not talking past people. Talk under people. It's just as bad. It's a tongue. It's speaking in a way that really just condemns other people, because they can't access the truth, because it's not intelligible, it's not clear enough. And sometimes we think we're doing them a favor by being vaguely loving, or speaking super biblically, but they don't understand it. They don't get it. It doesn't help them. They either don't see the truth staring them right in the face, or they can't decipher the truth because of our vocabulary. And what Paul is saying here in relation, using speaking in tongues as an example, is how unloving is it for us to not really care about that. Let me just say real quickly about design, and that is that all of the gifts that God wants to give his people for the purposes of love, for building each other up, they have designs to them. And when we live according to those designs, they they build people up. And when we don't, they don't. And the, the one thing that will always take a gift that has the ability to build somebody up in love and destroy it, that is, make it totally ineffective and oftentimes get it to accomplish the opposite of what it is intended for, is this theme, again, that runs all through the Bible and especially through First Corinthians. It's pride. Pride will always do that. It will almost always make a gift the opposite of what it's meant to be, right? What happens when a spiritual teacher starts getting really clever and really funny and really thinks that's the most important thing. What happens, right? The content gets all jumbled. It gets screwed up. The teacher becomes the issue rather than the gospel. Everything, the whole thing turns on itself and gets undermined, right? Or speaking in tongues. What if some people forget that this is just a wonderful gift to help you worship, but people start using it to demonstrate how spiritual they are. It does the opposite. It undermines worship rather than enhances worship. Same thing with prophecy. When people misuse it, what happens? The church grows resistant to it, and then it can't comfort and help and exhort anybody because nobody will listen. Even the gift of helps and service, when pride gets in, people want to be seen, and so they want to do the jobs that are seen and appreciated, which is the opposite of what's useful with the gift of helps or the gift of service. But in all of these cases, if we use them for what they're used for, they communicate. And not just the gifts that have speaking involved, not just tongues or prophecy or teaching or preaching or that stuff, but all of the nonverbal gifts, they communicate too. And you know that. Um, last night, I, I, yesterday I did a wedding here and um, we had a reception in the church. Apparently it's like the first one in seven years because of how impractical it is because there's no, there's no day between Saturday and Sunday to like clean everything, right? And so there's a guy in this church, and I won't even, I'm not even going to tell you his name because he has the gift of helps, and he does it right. He doesn't need his name named. And when I, when I was leaving here at 10-something, he was still here. I talked to him this morning. He, he finally left at 11-something. He's not part of the family. He's not clo- even close to the family that got married, but he knows how everything works here at High Point. He has a key to everything. He can fix, start, end just about everything. And one of the reasons he stayed till almost 11 o'clock is because I wanted to be able to serve the couple communion by themselves and I wanted to set up this little thing with a light on it and he stayed an extra hour and a half partly just so he'd be here to turn the light off because he knew I didn't know how to do it just so I could try to create a special moment for that couple he just he's driven by God to help and it makes a difference and he doesn't need it. And you know, and here's the thing. He and I could sit down and we could have a long argument over who has said and ministered more and built the other person up more. Me preaching at him for two years or me watching him quietly serve with his gift of helps. He has spoken so much to me To see him get virtually no recognition, not do any kind of glamorous jobs, but yet day in and day out, he is like a heart beating and beating and beating and holding this place up. It's amazing. And every gift that we have, even the nonverbal ones, speak. And is the way you are using yours clear? Is it intelligible? And does it communicate how great Jesus is and how great the gospel is? Or are you using it to try to communicate how great you are, right? Um, This last week, I was reading a book in the deer stand because I was having a nice morning out there completely uninterrupted by deer. And um, it's called—it's by Kevin Young. It's a book called The Hole in Our Holiness. And one of the things he talks about, he says, I look at the evangelical church, and he speaks at a lot of conferences and travels a lot. He says, one of the things that I see is, is all these Bible-believing Christians and churches— and they and they seem to be interested in their church and generally interested in the bible and generally interested in the gospel but not interested seemingly at all in holiness and he he said think about it what has god actually promised us right now what is the what is the absolutely amazing thing that god has promised us that we can experience now and you might say like well eternal life okay yeah but do you feel it yet like are you like, it's, a lot of that's kind of future, right? Or or you'd be like, well, g- well, God's presence. Like, I belong to God. God belongs to me. We're connected vitally with each other spiritually. That's true, but can you feel any of that right now? M- most people can't. We believe it by faith. It's true. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. But, like, I don't get to, like, mystically enjoy that most of the time. I trust that that is there because of what's happening inside of me, but I, I'm not enjoying that other than cognitively because I trust it's happening. Right? And it's not success or ease. I haven't been all that much more successful since I've become a Christian, and my life has not gotten particularly easier, other than I don't, you know, create more problems for myself. Um, you know, God has helped with some of that, but there's plenty of stuff going on in my life that I'd love for him to keep from happening to me that he doesn't. So, so what is the big promise? What is the astoundingly amazing thing that you and I can experience in this life in relationship to the present work of the gospel? And honestly, the biblical answer is Holiness. How fun does that sound? <laughs> right? But, you see, it says, in, it says in Hebrews 12, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And in that context, it is not talking about imputed holiness from the cross. It's talking about real transformation that happens in people when they believe in come to love and follow Jesus. And, and— Peter says this, and if, and if the apostle Peter had not said it in the Bible, we would have to say this is heresy. He says that when we come to know and follow Jesus, something happens in us where we, and this is what he says, participate in the divine nature. Participate. The Eastern church used to call it divinization, but that freaks everybody out, and understandably, that vocabulary. But the idea is, is that we share we share we can share in the in the personhood of god in the sense that god begins to make us like himself in terms of his values his virtues his truthfulness of character what he's like what he believes and how he feels who he is and our passions and our character and our everything begins to be formed like we become like God And now, I know everybody's terrified to even talk about this because, oh, we're going to be so self-righteous and everybody's going to hate us. But listen, we have been intimidated back from this calling because we're afraid people are going to say that we're just being self-righteous. Listen, when people tell us we're being self-righteous, just like a prophecy, we should consider it. Am I being self-righteous? But half of it is just like when people told you in the playground when you were a kid, when you didn't want to beat up the the weak kid, that you were being a goody two-shoes because they were full of malice. The fact is, is we're called to holiness. This real transformation, which is a participation in the divine nature, which we can experience in an increasing way now as the gospel works its way out into our life. And that is the golden city of this life's enjoyment. Holiness. What the Bible calls godliness. It is this huge blessing. And listen, if you believe that, and you know how everything in this life has taken us down on the knees to get there, if you know how broken and twisted you are inside, if you know how much temptation there is, if you know how many things screw up the way we think about it, and if you know there are a hundred people for each of us jeering us on the sidelines to quit the race, then how could you do anything but carry whatever you've got into the wagon train of people who are moving in that direction saying, listen, we need to help each other get there. This is what I've got. What do you have? How do we put it together? And how do we help each other get there? And that's all Paul is saying. That's all he's saying out of love for what we've been called to and out of a knowledge for all that seeks to hold us back, recognizing that the promise of Jesus is not only that we'd be forgiven judicially, but we would be reformed morally and spiritually to become like God and to share in the divine nature, and that if we team up together and we will become this organism called the church, one body with many gifts, teaming everything together, putting everything in one place, acting out of love, seeking every gift, and doing everything to build, we can get there together. You see, if you see that reality, you'll be a builder, won't you? You'll never be as great as the great builder. The place the scripture says, the one who is building a city whose builder and architect is God. But we can be part of the process of him building each one of us. Seeking the one thing that he's drawn us to. Seeking real holiness that flows out of love and a desire to be like Christ and using every resource that we have, everything that we've mined out and sought for God to give us for the good of others and their upbuilding. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray that you'd help us to be this people, that we would be one body, one organism, one um, one city together, one people um, that we would, we would recognize that the, the great promise of the gospel in this life is freedom from guilt and freedom from a sense of, of brokenness and lostness because of the cross, but that the effect of the cross is a transformation beyond what we've fully experienced and that that is your great promise, that it's not some mystical thing or that you could make us like yourself, that you would form us into something and that we would have the great, the great pleasure and the great honor of being made like you in certain ways that you intended for us to be. And we pray that you'd help us to band together to bring everything we have to the table, to seek all that we can receive from you, and to build it together, the church, and that the church would seek to use those gifts to build whatever we can for the good of all people. Pray in Jesus' name.